Well, it really is a, a particularly great joy to be able to be here on this occasion and to share in the installation and to share in simply the fellowship of being together in God's presence on this glorious morning, not least after such dramatic weather days that we've been through and anticipate still more in the future. Steve has been uh, a great gift to me, likewise, and over the years, he and a number of people who I've known have been a very tight little group together, and it's their fellowship together that has been one of the models to me of how you have enduring life in Christ and enduring life in ministry by doing it together with other people, and he has done that in deep and significant ways, and I'm really, really grateful that he's now been called here. Janet, my wife, and I have just recently moved back to Piedmont. I've finished uh, my time as president at Fuller, so we're beginning a new chapter ourselves and are excited that this church is underway in so many wonderful ways and that, uh, that the opportunity of, of service together is something that is going to be continuing to grow and develop and mature in whatever ways uh, God might lead and as you to get together decide. The text that I want us uh, to look at this morning is a text in <clears throat> the Gospel of Matthew. It comes at the end of, the, of what we call the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5 through 7. And it is just an example of a text that raises lots and lots of very salty questions. Let's just start with the biggest one. Like, why are we even here this morning? What, what is this that we're doing? What, what's actually happening here? It presupposes all kinds of things that I wish we had longer than we do this morning to explore that sets the stage. It's about claims of a God who made the world, who set it in motion, who has tended it and loved and nurtured it, a God who's given it freedom, extraordinary freedom, a God who's given us the privilege and opportunity to be in relationship with one another and with God and with the world that's around us. It's a story that is rich and full and takes no less than 66 books in this volume that we call the Bible to actually begin to tell that remarkable story. We are here today as a little micro moment where if you could just imagine panning all the way into some very specific detail. Now we are a particular community of people in a particular town in a specific moment in history asking the same questions, struggling with so many of the same challenges, exercising the same faith and raising the same doubts. And in the process of that, God meets us as God has met people generation by generation in community. And it's in this community that God is present. God's present to Israel by calling a people together. God's present in the church and the ecclesia, the people that have been called out to be God's people, to be God's disciples, to be followers of Jesus Christ. Those are all rich terms. And in this community, a community that is a Christian church and a Christian church that is also quite intentionally open to people who come from all kinds of different contexts with all sorts of different questions and different sorts of religious and traditional backgrounds, to come and be a community together, asking serious and important questions, exercising serious and important faith, loving one another, and seeking to love the world that is around you. But most of all, to do all of that out of a love for God. The text that we're going to look at today is a text that just puts its focus on some of the surprises that are built into all of that enterprise. Matthew is a gospel of surprise itself. It's full of shocking revelation to the people of Israel, to the first century church, and it is also a surprise still today. 
all of the Gospels have ways of calling us to wakefulness, calling us to be people who are alert to God and to the world around us in new ways. In Matthew, it's a Gospel specially written probably to a Jewish audience. It has the most references to what we call the Torah, the Old Testament, and it's in that context that Matthew then sprinkles in both that, the deep tradition out of which this moment comes and then focuses in on the uniqueness of what Jesus himself is doing. In Matthew 5 to 7, Jesus' first body of teaching, he lays out a vision of the kingdom of God, which rearranges every relationship, which rearranges how we perceive ourselves and God, how we perceive our motives and intentions, how we perceive ourselves within the context of family, how we perceive ourselves and each other in the context of a wider culture and society. And he pushes the limit over and over again. Often people read this gospel and this portion of the gospel of Matthew and see Jesus as a kind of sanguine figure, a sort of a gentle, mild Jesus. Actually, the Sermon on the Mount is just so unbelievably awkward, it's hard to even begin to overstate it. And at the end of all of that rich awkwardness, which for Jesus is an invitation into life, come these words. Finishing the sermon, he says, everyone then who hears these words of mine and acts on them will be like a wise man who built his house on rock. The rain fell, the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain fell, the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was its fall. Now, when Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were astounded at his teaching, for he taught them as one having authority, not as their scribes. Oh God, as we begin to reflect for a few moments on this text, may we each have ears to hear. In hearing, as Jesus says in this very section of the text, may we have a willingness to actually do what you have called us to do and to be. Lead us, speak to us, oh God, this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. I suppose every teacher thinks of themselves as somebody who is trying to bring about influence, education, information. In Jesus' case, he certainly wants to do that. There's a self-consciousness about revelation that he's offering, insight, wisdom, direction, teaching that's meant to guide the moral and practical lives of people in all kinds of different ways. But in this particular case, he now says, I not only want you to be informed, but I want you to be transformed. And I want you to demonstrate the transformation by actually living out what I've just said. Please don't stand at the door and say, good sermon, pastor, to Jesus. That's not what he's looking for. He says, if you greet me at the door, I call you to be greeting me as one who seeks to live what I've just taught. In fact, he says, the difference between standing and falling, the difference between perpetual existence, as it were, or sustained existence, versus not, is really whether or not you're going to build your house on the rock. The rock is Jesus Christ, but building your house on the rock is to say you put your trust and then move forward in the reality of the fullness of who God is, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And the turning point will be whether you do the truth. 
We are perhaps living through one of the greatest crises in the American church, probably since the Civil War. There's more of a sense of disorientation, of reorientation, of abandonment, of confusion, of doubt, of longing, of hope, of joy, but also deep sorrow, and people just simply quietly disappearing from the church. All of that comes about because of really significant questions and issues that are not from just the outside culture, but from the reality of the church and its own sometimes unwillingness to do exactly what Jesus is saying so that the number one critique, perhaps through the centuries and certainly today, is is the church going to live its identity? Are we as the community of God's people called together around Jesus Christ as Lord, are we a community that wants to do the truth? Or as it were, just think about the truth or muse about the truth? Or are we willing to actually do the truth? This is where it gets really awkward. We all know this. This is why hypocrisy is one of the most historic things. We can affirm it, but the question is, are we willing to live it? So Jesus sets this up as the great challenge. And then the text observes, now when Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowd was astounded at his teaching, for he taught them as one having authority. That word authority in the Gospel of Matthew is a word that's used in several very significant places. It's almost a technical term in this context. An authority, which is the opportunity to bring together both what we say and what we do. That's what makes the authority of Jesus so distinct. A number of years ago, Max Dupree, who was uh, then the, the head of the Herman Miller Company, had a daughter who was giving birth to an extremely uh, early grandchild, weighing just one pound, eight ounces at birth. It was an astounding uh, moment, and he rushed to the hospital to help his daughter and to figure out whatever he might be able to do to support her. And the head nurse said, Max, what you need to do is you need to come every day and as gently as possible stick your hands through the sides of the bassinet and, and very, very gently stroke Zoe's body and tell her over and over again how much you love her. Because what she needs more than anything else is to be able to connect your voice to your touch. Max tells this story in part because he's simply wanting to share about a moment in his own life. He's also wanting to talk about the significance of leaders and the difference of leaders who actually connect voice and touch and the, the challenge and the all too common reality of leaders not connecting voice and touch. But the question in the church today and one of the reasons why the American church and the global church, but the American church is in such crisis has to do with whether or not we're actually willing to connect our voice and our touch to do the truth. I remember one time talking to a graduate student at Cal and he had no connection with the church. We'd met through a friend that introduced us. He was very eager to ask a lot, a lot of serious questions about faith. And I remember this one day came and he said, you know, let me just step back for a second and ask you a question. So are you saying that if I came to your church that I would meet people that are actually like Jesus? <laughs> Woo! <laughs> now there's a question for a pastor. If I come to your church, will I meet people who are actually like Jesus? Because he said, that would seem to be the implication that if what we're talking about is true, and if it's actually meant to be manifest in real life, then in fact I should be able to meet such people. Well, gratefully, there were such people, are such people, there and here, 
people who genuinely want to live in this voice and touch connection. Jesus presses this, and I know our time is brief, so I'll just make a few comments about the verses in eight uh, through the middle of the chapter. Jesus comes down from the mountain, and then the text says this. When Jesus had come down, great crowds followed him, and there was a leper who came to him and knelt before him, saying, Lord, if you choose, you can make me clean. He stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I do choose, be made clean. Immediately his leprosy was cleansed. Then Jesus said to him, see that you say nothing to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest, and offer the gift that Moses commanded as a testimony to them. Now, it stands, as probably many of you know, as almost a truism that there was very little more poignant and tangible about the way to retain ritual purity in the first century if you were a faithful Jew than to avoid anything that might cause you to be impure. And lepers, people with leprosy, were people who were certainly seen as an arch example of people who are unclean and worthy of being avoided. Their life was spent and in fact, announcing this to the world, unclean, 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 in order to keep people who are concerned about this. It's like wearing a mask and announcing through your mask, don't come near me. Because in fact, if you do, I could make you unclean. Now what's remarkable about this is that with that in mind, having said all that he said in the Sermon on the Mount about loving unexpected people, about loving people that may not look like you or vote like you or like you, but people that you encounter here, a leper, a stereotype of an unclean person, Jesus, a righteous holy man, encountering the leper. And it's this man in his own courage. I mean, imagine the brokenness of being a person so isolated in that context, having the courage to shout out, if you choose, you can make me clean. Jesus stops, and without pause, the text suggests, he simply sees the man, hears him, and says, I do choose, touches him, and says, be made clean. So the question that this section of the text raises is, it's great to hear an instruction of good theology, of biblical faithfulness, of the witness of Jesus Christ. And the question is, are we going to actually live that life, or are we not? What happens in this particular moment is that Jesus does this in a radical, personal, tangible, physical, and yes, also miraculous way. He heals the man. The question that we have to ask ourselves with this as an example is, what do we do with people who might stain us? We don't ourselves live in a world where our experience is daily encounters or potential encounters with lepers, but all of us would have to admit on reflection that there are lots of people that we're prepared to avoid. There's lots of people that might stain us, we think. And a lot of the subtlety of culture, a lot of the subtlety of class and wealth and privilege is all about managing how to have as little to do with people who might stain us as possible so that we're free to go in our way and not be bothered by, quote, them. A number of years ago, not long after 9-11, when when the growing popularity of private jet travel was increasing because of the hassles of, of 
commercial travel. There was an article in the Wall Street Journal about a man who had decided that he was only going to fly private, and he explained it this way. He said, you know, one day I was flying from both one coast to the other, and there was a woman in business with a baby that cried the whole way, and he said, that settled it. I'm never flying commercial again. And then he said this, because I've decided that the really important thing to me is to exclude from my life anyone who might bum me out. Wow. So that's an option, apparently. Or so he thought. What an extraordinary statement about this alternative vision there is in our culture of self-interest, self-curation, intense self-curation, a capacity to be able to say and see only what we want to say or see. Here Jesus, encountered by the leper, engages the leper, does the very thing that violates ritual purity, heals the man, and a new reality is born. This is the shock, the surprise of the kingdom of God. Where are we prepared to move toward people who might stain us? Where are we prepared to move toward people whose views or personalities or life circumstances may be so dramatically different than our own? Where are we prepared to move toward the other, not away? This is a mark, I think Jesus is suggesting, of what it means to live in the kingdom of God, not under societal or even religious forms, but under the reality of a reign of God, of justice and mercy and peace and healing and kindness and shalom. This intensifies even more in the final section. Jesus encounters a Roman centurion, a centurion who represents everything about the dominating powers of the enemy. And now it's this man who comes to Jesus and says he has a servant who's ill. Jesus says, oh, well, I'll come and heal him. The man says, no, 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 you don't even need to come and heal him. I know how this works. I'm a man under authority. I get how this is. I say the word and it's done. All you need to do is say the word. Jesus is so astonished that these are words coming out of the mouth of the enemy, as it were. He slows down the action, looks around the crowd and says, did you all hear that? I, I just want to go on record, he says, for saying that, that I haven't heard faith like that in all of Israel. And that there are people inside the household of faith who are actually going to be found in the out, outside. And there's people who think of themselves as being on the outside who are going to be on the inside because of the faith of this man. And then he heals the man's servant. See, it's in this text that we move from the stainers to the enemy. What do you do about enemies? We live in a time where it has been spoken about endlessly over the last number of years. How much more presence of enemy mindsets there are. How thick it is, how deep it is, how incurable it seems, how profound it is that we hold in our being the capacity to hate, to resist, to resent, to push away in the depths that we have shown national capacity, personal capacity, regional capacity to be able to do. So the question for the kingdom of God is not just how do you push them away, how do you tolerate them, how do you isolate yourselves from them? No, the question that Jesus is saying is what do you do about encountering them and actually hearing them and actually loving them? And in this case, holding them up as exemplars 
of, a, of an unexpected faith. That requires a new heart, a new mind, a new orientation. That is about what life in the kingdom of God longs to create and recreate in each of us. Jesus says earlier in the Sermon on the Mount, you know, it's not a big deal if you love Gentiles. The big question is, do you love enemies? That is sort of the gold standard for Jesus. Are we prepared to be a community who love enemies? What an amazing reputation it would be for the church and the world to be, oh yeah, don't, don't go near the Christian church because they just like love enemies and that's not really what I'm into. Because <laughs> I've decided that the really important thing to me is to exclude from my life anyone who might bum me out. And all of us do that. It describes where we live. It describes where we drive. It describes who we let in and who we don't, whose texts we respond to and who we don't, and on and on and on. The story of inclusion and exclusion repeats itself. So what are we doing today? Steve Shipstead, by the will of God, has been called to be the pastor of this church. We are here because that work of God's grace in Steve's life and in Leslie's life has brought them to this place and this time to be among you, to join you, but also to speak to you, to be both encouragers and lifters and listeners, but also people who, as Steve's preaching and leadership is exercised, will also at times need to confront, to raise hard questions, to ask, are we going far enough, deep enough? Are we prepared to to do a work that's beyond our human capacity, or are we going to be something else? The gospel that Steve holds in his heart that has shaped his life is a gospel like this gospel that is vivid and real and personal and arises out of a sense of encounter with Jesus and an encounter that is actually meant to transform our lives as we then live in the world as light and salt. That is Steve's contribution. And your contribution is to actually simply, in the first instance, be brothers and sisters together in that great enterprise. We get to bring all of our doubts and questions and uncertainties, all the perspectives that come from lots of different angles and people's lives and experiences, people's ways of thinking, ways of understanding the Christian faith, differing in their understanding of the Christian faith. All of that gets to be brought into the mix. That's just called authentic community. It doesn't exist otherwise. That's the nature of how this works. And yet, you join together as brothers and sisters in faith in some organic sense to become a lighthouse, an ever more deeply influential lighthouse, first to one another, to share God's light and love and mercy with each other, and then to do so in all the places where God scatters you, nearby and far away. And you do it out of this unbelievable new communion that doesn't avoid people who might stain, that doesn't walk away from people who might be enemies, that actually lives and gives demonstration of a new reality which Jesus calls the reign of God. The reign of God in God's mercy and grace and justice. So why do we do this? Because it's really good to gather together to be self-conscious and intentional and purposeful in saying, yes, this is actually what we want to do. This is what we want to do. Lots of questions, lots of unfolding journey yet to, uh, to take place, of course. But in this moment, 
gathering as a church community to say, for Steve to say in front of you, this is what I believe, and this is what I promise I will do everything I can to actually do in real action. And for all of you to say, and we, I, we, want together to stand with you, to support you and encourage you, to actually be joined together in this new reality that is meant to manifest itself in life and joy and hope in so many different ways. It's to that great end that we then come to the, close to the end of this part of the service, a bit more, and then the installation service that focuses on these things. And I chose these texts because these are texts that highlight the peculiarity of the gospel. This is not about churchianity. This isn't about how to just be a religious institution in a beautiful town. It's about how to live a radical new reality that Jesus Christ has made available to the world for all of us, for all of Piedmont, for all of Oakland, for all of the Bay Area and far, far, far beyond. May Piedmont Community Church, in this season as Steve leaves you as pastor, come to know one another ever more deeply and to live ever more clearly and faithfully in the world together because of God's presence and power speaking this uncomfortable reality into your lives with great joy and with great hope. Lord, in your mercy, we come to you today hearing this text and acknowledging all the ways that it challenges us, that it calls us to be new, and you are the one who offers us that pathway to newness. So may we tell and hear and live the whole truth and do it slant, with surprise, with unexpectedness, with humility, with courage, and with great joy. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.